of the Chronicles of Narnia. Everybody knows about the Chronicles of Narnia. Who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia? You got, everybody knows this, right? C.S. Lewis and the children passed through a portal in the back of the wardrobe and entered into a, a fantastic land ruled by or being terrorized by the White Witch. And um, not to worry, Mr. Beaver told Susan that Aslan was coming back. And do you remember Susan's question? Pardon me? <laughs> well, she said, she actually said, is he a man? And Mr. Beaver said, a man? Of course he's not a man. He's a lion. And you remember what her next question was. This is the one I love. This is the question I love. This is so applicable for every Christian. She says, is he safe? And what did Mr. Beaver say? Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good, right? And as I read the text um, this week, I could not help but think of that incident. So if we believe, if we obey, if we exercise faith, if we walk with Christ, will it be safe for us in a temporal sense? You know what? Jesus never promises that. He never promises you that. What do we learn from our Bibles? Daniel was delivered and Stephen was stoned. So what do we take away? It's not always safe to go with Aslan. Not always safe. In fact, we're going to look at some scriptures that tell us in fact, Jesus said it over and over and over in many different ways. It's not always safe to walk with him. Of course, we know what happened to him. I love what one theologian said about God. He says, you always know what God is going to be like, but you never know what God is going to do. You and I, as professed Christians, need to get used to living that out. You know, this name it and claim it stuff, it's garbage. You don't get to name it and claim it. God is sovereign. You are not sovereign. Your word is not sovereign. Your claims are not sovereign. Your prayers are not sovereign. God is sovereign, right? We bow to what God decides to do. Maybe we'll be Daniel. Maybe we'll be Stephen. It doesn't really matter. We love him. We trust him. Whatever he decides is best. Amen? This is the way true believers prosecute they're not, their life. We're never really sure what God has in store, but Jesus says, follow me, right? He just says, follow me. That's it. That's really our only concern. It's not what the circumstances are. Our concern is, are we going to walk with God? Will we obey the command? Follow me. It's real simple, right? It's not complex. It's not complicated in any way. Jesus' command to you and to me is to follow him. He never said or even implied it would always be safe. Have you read the Gospels? Do you know what happened to the, the disciples? All of them but John, what happened? They were martyred, all but John. Jesus said to his disciples, men will hate you because of me. 
He told his men, they will lay hands on you and they will persecute you for my name's sake. He told them that they will put you to death because of your testimony. Jesus never promises a safe, happy, prosperous life. Those are the false teachers that promise that. Okay, those are the charlatans. Those are the frauds. Jesus never promised this. Yes, the guy in Houston with the good hair. You know, if I had hair like that, I'd have a big church too, probably. What do you think, Rohan? No, never mind. You know, the, the pastor of the largest so-called church in America apparently hasn't got around to reading the Bible, whereas he focuses on your best life now. What does Jesus focus on? You know the answer, right? Your best life forever. That's what Jesus is interested in. It may be hard here. In fact, if we know our Bibles and we know the history of the church, sometimes it's really hard for believers here. Sometimes we die here simply because we're believers. Jesus is not all about making your temporal life pretty. He's all about making your eternity mind-blowing. Okay? You know, we talked about it, was it last week or the week before, where you're, you know, every nanosecond of eternity, your heart will be exploding simply from being in the presence of God. Jesus talked about self-denial. He talked about cross-bearing. He talked about persecution. Yes, he talked about martyrdom. What, much of what passes for Christianity today is biblically unrecognizable, Okay. It's just, it's biblically unrecognizable that as Christians, we can say, well, I'm a believer. You know, I give mental assent to the facts and that makes me a Christian. I, I give mental assent to historical facts. I attend church when it's not too inconvenient. You know, I give a euro or two if, if, uh, if I think about it, you know, the spare change mentality. Uh, you know, I may serve in the church in some way if it's not too time consuming. I'm trying to avoid the really bad sins. I always love what Francis Chan says. You know, your average American, I'll just go to America. I'm an American so I can pick on America. You know, your average American Christian, they think they're a Christian, you know, and, and the hardest thing they try to do is not cuss anymore. You know, that's, that's the best they can do is not cuss so much. I always loved that. I always thought that was hilarious. Um, you know, we might speak about Jesus out in the world if it doesn't get too uncomfortable. You know, that's that biblically unrecognizable stuff. But if you actually read the Bible, you see that it's not about mental ascent. It's about people in love. Right. It's not some mental transaction. It's a heart transaction. I love him. He's loved me. I love him. That's what it's about. It's not obligatory church attendance. It's like I want to go worship God with God's people. I want to sit under the preached word. I want to be changed by the power of it through the spirit. It's not, you know, I'll throw a few euros in the basket if it's if it's if I think about it. It's like, you know, try and stop me from bringing a worthy offering to God. It's not convenient service to the church. It's being poured out for the body. It's not merely avoiding the bad sins. It's longing and pursuing holiness. Amen. This is what you read on the pages of Scripture. I'm, I'm not just trying not to cuss. <laughs> right? I'm trying to become godly. Right? So, somewhere along the way, biblical Christianity got hijacked by religion. You know the word domesticated. I like this word. It's, it's perfect in talking about 
much of what is called the modern church. It means to tame, subdue, suppress, and make docile. Now, doesn't that, doesn't that describe much of what Christianity has become? It's just domesticated. It's almost like any other world religion, which they do not come from God. We say we come from God. And we're every bit as tame and docile and subdued as they are. We all use the name of Jesus, but few seek to live the life that he's called us to live. Most in the modern church risk nothing, sacrifice nothing, venture nothing, and forego nothing. One of my favorite verses, I've talked to you many times about it, Philippians 1.21. Does anybody know what it is off the top of your head? Okay, to live is Christ, to die is gain, right? This is what we're called to. If you understand that verse, you will understand the sermon. If you, don't really, if you can't really step into that verse, you will not really fully understand the sermon. If you haven't got to that place yet where to actually live means Christ, doesn't mean you, you know, doesn't mean it's all about you. It means Christ is being exalted in me, which is your primary function here as not only a human being, but particularly a, um, a redeemed human being. So Philippians 1.21, the Apostle Paul, you know, as one theologian said, if you ever get Philippians 1.21, you are one of the most dangerous people on the planet. <laughs> it's just true. <laughs> you know, you're... Yeah. You're dangerous to the status quo. You're dangerous to this fallen world that hates God. One theologian said something like this. He says, you know, you can create a nice, a nice safe life for yourself. But he said, you know what? I'd rather go down swinging. I love that. I think I'm going to name the sermon that. I'm going to go down swinging. You know, he, he says, well, I'm not going to die in a nursing home. Well, some of us may die in a nursing home, so I, I didn't actually want to quote him on that. Some of us may, out of necessity, die in a nursing home. No shame there. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go down swinging, right? I'm not going to get lazy and just coast on out. And I can't tell you as an old man how many times I see this. Old Christians, they just kind of coast out. Well, I've done everything I need to do, you know. I don't need to do anything else. I've done my part. Yeah, that's pretty sad. The Apostle Paul went down swinging. <laughs> okay? We know that about him. And of course, he is the author of Colossians. So, um, as we look at this letter once again, we see that Paul is not into any kind of domesticated Christianity yeah, he is definitely going to go down swinging. As we talked about the last couple of weeks, just to review a little bit, the Holy Spirit has prompted Paul to write this letter to confront false teachers. False teachers were adding something to Christ. To be saved, you must have Christ plus something. And we're going to see this uh, develop in the next chapter. But Paul's laying the groundwork um, to get into that thesis on... Christ plus anything is demonic. If you add anything to Christ, it's demonic. 
Um, if you add sacraments, you add prayers, you add uh, pilgrimages, you add good works. Um, anything you add to Christ is demonic. Any kind of ritual. Um, we know where that comes from, the father of lies. It's satanic attack. So I'm just going to keep saying that to you. Christ plus gospels are always false. They are always another gospel. It's what Colossians is about. And we'll be getting into the meat of that as we get into chapter 2. So Paul is defending the purity and simplicity of the biblical gospel. And as I say, you can hear Paul between the lines. He's saying, seriously, you're going to add something to this awesome God, right? Something to keep in mind as we make our way through the book. I'm going to just reread it again. Verse 24. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is in the church, and filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. Do you hear it? Paul says, man, I'm not going to coast on out. He says, I'm not going to allow anyone to domesticate my call. I'm going to finish. We know what he says in Corinthians. I'm going to finish the course. Actually, he wrote that to Timothy. But in Corinthians, he says, I'm going to run to win, right? I'm not going to coast on in. I'm not going to take the easy way. I'm going to make my temporal life count for all eternity. You know that that's the equation. You know that's the calculus, right? God has arranged things in such a way that your temporal life informs and fills out your eternity. You're supposed to understand and know this. What you do here for the cause of Christ is magnified forever. You will be rewarded as a good steward. According to the Lord Jesus, Paul knew firsthand it was not safe to go with Christ. Some of us, we kind of want, want the salvation Jesus offers, but, you know, not willing to pay much of a price in obedience. You guys know my favorite pastor in the U.S. I hate to even say favorite. I love both MacArthur and Piper. John Piper, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, he says, you know, it's always risky to go with Jesus, right? It's always risky. So where's the risk for you? I'm just asking, where's the risk for you? It's always risky. In some sphere of your life, it will be risky to stand and give testimony for Jesus. I love what Piper says. He says, it's always right to take the risk. You know, some of us are, you know, so risk averse that we shrink back at, the, at, at even the slightest inclination that there may be trouble or persecution. And you guys know, it's one of my favorite verses, John 14, 21. Why should we risk? Why should we be willing to risk? Why should we be willing to risk in obedience? What does Jesus say in John 14, 21? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And what? I will disclose myself to you. I tell you this all the time. People say, I'm not getting much of God. That's your fault. 
If you're not close to God, that's your fault. If you don't feel His power in your life, that's your fault. You know why? Because somewhere, most likely, you've left off obedience. God has called you to do a thing. He's called you to a place. He's called you to obedience. And for whatever reason, you have, you know, stepped back from that. And so you have forfeited John 14, 21. God says, in obedience, I disclose myself to you, right? The Apostle Paul knew this. You could not stop him. He, he was unstoppable. Man, he was hooked on John 14, 21. He was hooked on that disclosure thing. And, and man, if, if I could hand off anything to you tonight, I want to hand off this to you, that you would become hooked on disclosure, right? That, that you would get so addicted to the disclosure of God through obedience that nobody could dissuade you anymore from radically obeying the God who created and redeemed you, right? It really is, and I, I can speak for myself, it really is pathetic sometimes how small we think and how small we live. When our God is God, who speaks trillions of galaxies into existence, Paul says, safe is nice, but that's not going to happen with Jesus. Not all the time. Anyway, Jesus is better. Paul is saying he's better. He's better than safety. He's better than dying in a nursing home. Don't misunderstand. My mom may be in a nursing home within months. I'm not disparaging my mom. I'm just trying to make a point. Because you know what? You can be in a nursing home and you can be a witness for Christ. Amen? I, I want you to understand my point. My point is that we're not going to coast in. My point is that we're going to finish well, right? You guys know Philippians 3, 7 through 8. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. This is the Apostle Paul, as you know. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now listen to John Piper's commentary on that verse. Listen to this. I've always loved this. Listen to what he says. Real faith, he's talking about you and me, if we claim to have it. Real faith loves God more than job, more than money, more than dream houses, more than retirement. It loves God more than family. It loves God more than life. Real faith says, whether God handles me tenderly or gives me over to torture, I love him. He's my reward. Amen? This is how we process life. God's my reward. If I lose everything, God's my reward. God is my reward. Okay, I got a John MacArthur quote, and I'll stop quoting preachers. But I love what he says. You guys know this if you've walked with the Lord very long. That uh, Christianity is not a run through the park with a bouquet of balloons. Right? <laughs> not real Christianity. You know, sometimes your spouse leaves. Sometimes your kids won't talk to you anymore. Sometimes friends avoid you. Sometimes you lose your job. And in dangerous parts of the world, sometimes you lose your life. 
you remember when Jesus invaded Paul's life on the road to Damascus, um, Jesus told Paul, I will tell you all that you must suffer for my name. I mean, that's how he, <laughs> that's how he called Paul. You know, Matthew 10, Luke 14, Jesus said, it might cost you your family to go with me. He said, it might cost your possessions to go with me. It might cost you everything to go with me. And then he exhorted his disciples to count the cost. You know, no easy, cheap believism. Obey me. This is always the implicit command. When Jesus says, follow me, the implicit command is obey me. Do what I do. Say what I say. Live like I lived. It's what Christianity is supposed to look like. Jesus said, count the cost. You know, and I, when, when I talk to people about becoming a Christian or uh, making a prof profession of faith or, um, you know, being baptized before they identify with him in that way, I, you know, make sure you understand what this is really about. It's not just about joining a church. It's about pledging your allegiance to God. And God says, count the cost. This is what he says. And you guys know what Paul suffered. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, five, nine, five times the, the 39 lashes, three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned and left for dead, he experienced numerous imprisonments and beaten times without number. He experienced, experienced hunger, thirst, cold, and exposure for the cause of Christ. And how does Paul talk about his sufferings? You guys remember this. <laughs> it's so beautiful. This guy who suffered more than all of us put together times a hundred. He says, these are momentary light afflictions. <laughs> right? Momentary light afflictions, which are producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And I couldn't help but think of us, how some of us melt in the face of simple verbal criticism. Right? Unwilling to risk even a little critique for God and his truth. Paul's worldview was dominated by his view of God. So everything that came into Paul's life. So Renee had that great prayer request. So I'm just going to pull Renee into it. We view it through the prism of what God wants to do. Right? We view all, all that comes into our life through the prism of what does God want to do with this. It's not just what do I selfishly want. Yes, we all want things and there's nothing wrong with wanting a thing. But what's important for us as Christians is to submit that want to the king. Right? We call him Lord for a reason. This is not, you know, some meaningless title that he takes upon himself. Lord means God in a biblical context. He's either God in your life or he's not. He can't be anything less. He can't be a religious icon. He can't be your Savior and not your Lord. You can't divide him up like that. He's God. Or really, he's nothing in your life. Paul would not settle for a careful statistical 
life. He took the long view. He pointed at the Bema seat. He was running to win, running to finish. He was fighting the good fight. Paul, you saw it in verse 24, Colossians chapter 1. He's going to go down swinging. And I want to go down swinging. Metaphorically, of course. We don't want to hit people. This is bad. You understand? That's just a metaphor. Somebody will walk out of here and say, well, Pastor Jim say we need to be cracking people upside the head. That's not what I'm saying. We're going to go down swinging for the glory of Christ. Paul says, I don't just endure my sufferings, I rejoice in them. So let me ask you, is that real for you? Can you rejoice in your sufferings? Or is it always, why is God doing this to me? Why is God let me, why is God let, let this happen to me? Or can you just open your hands and just rejoice in God's providence and not know what's going to happen, not know what's coming, not know why it hurts so bad? But you do know that your God is God. And your God will work, Romans 8, 28, through and in your life. Why is Paul like this? There's a lot of reasons. But I couldn't help but think about what we talked about last week. He gets the reconciliation thing, right? This is what we talked about last week. You were an enemy of God. Now you are a co-heir with Christ. This is the biggest thing that can happen to a human being. Some of you think the biggest thing that's ever happened to you was you finished university or you got a job or you made a million or you're, 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 you, know, you got the, the perfect spouse or you had the perfect kids. Can I say... With all due respect, those things are meaningless compared to being reconciled to God. I'm not saying they're meaningless in, in, from our perspective, but I'm saying as compared to being reconciled, once you were an enemy and now you're reconciled to God. Beloved, we need to have some perspective here. We need to understand what God has said to us and what He's doing. We deserved hell, but we will never go there. That's pretty big. If you don't know how big that is, you don't know anything about hell. And you don't know anything about eternity. You don't know anything about what God has said about those two things. If you don't understand how big it is, and how probably we all should go home and lay on our face for about an hour, And just be in awe of what God has done. The young adults are going through the book of James. We hit that there in the first chapter, those first few verses. You know, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Greek word translated consider, it connotes uh, having authority over. God is saying, let your joy have authority over. Let your joy have authority over your troubles. Can you do that? Or do you have to worry about it all the time? Worry in a Christian context, is sin. Jesus says, stop it. I'm God. I'm in charge. How does he say it? Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. They don't worry. I'm going to take care of. Actually, Jesus says, you know, 
you come after me, I'm going to take care of the rest of it. This is what he says. Not in the way that Joel Osteen talks about, but in the way the Bible talks about. Right? You'll be mine. Yeah, you may be martyred, but you're going to be mine forever. You're going to be in my presence. You're going to experience infinite joy in my presence. So we are, this, there's this commanded joy in the face of trials, tribulations, and persecutions. It's, it is uh, pervasive in the Bible. Let me just give you a couple of verses. Um, Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Jesus says, Blessed are you. What does that mean? What does it mean? Happy are you when you are persecuted and men insult you and falsely accuse you on my account. Ha I remember one time I got really attacked by someone close to me, and that was the thing Karen said to me. She said, Blessed. I mean, it really hurt. She said, Blessed. It, it, was, like, it was like the sweetest balm you could put on my open wound. She said, Blessed are you. I mean, I was attacked because of our ministry and our life and our witness. It was the sweetest thing anyone has ever said to me, I think. She said, blessed are you, Jim. <laughs> Luke 6, and 23, Jesus says, Blessed are you when men hate you, ostracize you, insult you, spurn you for my sake. Be glad and leap for joy. Your reward in heaven is great. When was the last time you leapt for joy? Because you were being persecuted. Okay, I have to confess, I don't remember ever doing it. Not physically, anyway. But you can leap for joy in your heart, knowing that your God is sovereign. Romans 8, 18, Paul says, The present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, the Apostle Paul Again says, I am well content with weakness, insults, distresses, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Jesus. Hebrews 10.31, the Hebrew Christians suffered uh, joyfully knowing that they had a better possession and an abiding one. They lost everything, but they suffered joyfully because God was their possession, right? Jesus was their superior Satisfaction. You guys know this. If you've been around the church very long, you know, you, you, you see Christians that have been in the church for a long time. They profess to be Christians. They have some, we'll say, moderate size calamity or tragedy in their life, and they are just blown away. Right? They are just blown away. And all they can do is whine. Now, I, I don't want to be... Um, you know, I don't want to be too hard and, and I don't want to, uh, to not be considerate and compassionate. But I mean, really, you got Christians that have been for decades, they profess to be Christians for decades and they have one little upset. And it's like they're undone. Beloved, these things ought not be so, right? Our God is God. We may be Daniel, we may be Stephen. Does it really matter? There's, okay, there's something lacking in our understanding if that matters. There's something sorely lacking in our understanding if it matters if we're going to be Daniel or Stephen, right? And I hope I'm not talking over your head. Daniel was delivered, Stephen was stoned. One guy martyred, one guy saved. Out of martyrdom. Beloved, we need to understand, does that really matter if you're a Philippians 121 Christian to live as Christ, to die as gain? 
It's always game for us to die. You know, my mom's just ready to go. She's 88. She's ready to go. And I'm ready for her to go. You say, well, Jim, that sounds awful. No, I know what awaits her. She's jazzed about it. I'm jazzed about it for her. You know, <laughs> to die is gain. Praise God. Because with all our technology, we'll never beat death. Death is coming for us all. You won't beat it. Nobody's going to beat it. It's coming for us all. So we talked about this a week or two ago. I can't remember now exactly what the deal was and how we brought it up because it wasn't really in my notes. Uh, but we did talk about Paul and Silas a little bit and we talked about um, what happened to them over in Acts 16. And, and just briefly, uh, there's, because they're a perfect illustration, you know, they were arrested and beaten for no good reason. They were cast into prison for no good reason. And what are they doing in prison? They're whining and wallowing and they can't believe God did this. What's God? Why did God let this happen? I'm trying to be a, I'm trying to be a good disciple. I'm trying to be an apostle. And he lets this happen. What were they doing? They were singing praises to God. <laughs> what did God do? You know the story. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. He sent an earthquake. Set them free. Oh, and then some people got converted. <laughs> Do you understand what your trial may be about? It may be about the conversion of someone in your orbit, right? Because they're going to watch you love Christ in it, right? They watch you love Christ in it, and they go, Wow! I didn't know a human being could do that. I didn't know a human being could let their joy have command and authority over the trial. Where do you get this joy from? Well, from the infinite one who dispenses infinite joy. I heard one preacher say about Paul and Silas, he says, they were practicing the presence of God in the trial. <laughs> I, think, I, think this is our, I think this is our best witness and our best evangelism and our best Christianity. To practice the presence of God in the hard spot. We're not going to engage in self-pity. We're not going to question God. We're not going to whine and we're not going to wallow. We're going to let the joy of God have authority in the hard spot. And so that perfectly leads me into the last part of verse 24, which is a little bit difficult for some people to understand. Paul says, I do my share on behalf of his body, the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What is Paul saying to us here about being a Christian? Paul says, I'm doing my share. His share of what? He says, I'm suffering for the body of Christ is exactly what he is saying. The unavoidable implication here is that we will have a share in kingdom suffering. We know this is true. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the Holy Spirit says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. It's not if, it's when. It will happen. 
It will happen. You should expect it. You should be ready. You should be prayed up. No whining. No wallowing. No self-pity. I know it's coming. It is coming. It will come to me. I will be prayed up. I will be ready. I'll make much of Christ in it. Right? It's not that hard. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 16. You, you guys probably know this. I love this text. Listen to it. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial uh, among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is not some strange thing. Persecution of Christians is not strange. It's always happened. It will always happen till the Lord comes back. We are strangers and exiles. The world hates us. If you don't know the world hates you, then you're not, yeah, you're not doing it right. <laughs> the world will hate you. And they will call you a hater. They'll call your speech hate speech. And they'll come after you. And sometimes they'll try to get your job and bankrupt you in the courts. This happens in the States. I don't know what it's like where you're from. I bet it's not much different. It's just part of the deal. You're supposed to know this is part of your job description as a, as a Christian. If you're vocal, if you're doing it, if you're really walking with God, some people will come after you. They will hate it and they will come after you. Continuing with the, with the Peter, the Peter uh, quote. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. Peter says the same thing Paul uh, does about suffering and sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Paul says and Peter says rejoice. Any confusion about that? Does anybody need for me to define rejoice for you? If you have any confusion about what this word means, if you'll come see me, I'll be happy to clear it up. I'll be happy to clear it up. Who was it? It was in Acts, right? I think. I'm just thinking about the, the guy who said he was, well, it was the disciples, right? It was a couple of disciples. Was it Peter and John? I don't know now. They were, they were rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ, right? You remember the text? I can't remember. It's, it's vaguely in the back of my mind. Um, but they were worshiping God and rejoicing that they had been counted worthy. So what does Paul mean when he talks about filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Let me just, again, well, I lied a while ago. One more Piper quote, okay? Because he explains it really well, better than I can. Listen to what he says. God intends for the afflictions of Christ to be pre presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. The suffering love of Christ for sinners is seen in the suffering love of his people for sinners. Christ means... For his saving sufferings to be taken to the world through the suffering of his people. One theologian says it this way. Christ's sufferings were for propitiation, which means the removal of wrath. Our suffering is for propagation. 
You know, when someone in your orbit sees you go through a hard time and fall on Jesus, it's just evangelism, man. <laughs> it's evangelism. Man, when the trial comes, I want you to always remember this. This is evangelism. God's probably going to save somebody around you. He's probably going to do it. Now, I can't point to a verse on that, and he hasn't promised to do it, but he's likely to do it. So when the trial comes, what? Is someone in my orbit going to be saved from hell for all eternity? Yeah, that's pretty important. I can rejoice in that. Right? I can rejoice in that. I think this is what Paul is saying. So we've talked about many times Christ's beauty, His sufficiency, and His value and worth are clearly seen in His people as we joyfully suffer for His sake. Jesus Christ is better than anything this life can give. I don't know. Do you believe that? I'm, just going, to, I'm, I'm going to ask you, is that true right now today in your life? Jesus Christ is better than anything this life can offer. You know, you're well on your way to being a Philippians 121 Christian if that's true for you. And here's the other side of it. Jesus Christ is better than anything death can take. You're well on your way to being a Philippians 121 Christian if you understand those two statements. Paul's life shouted, you know, that Jesus is better no matter what. His life is still shouting that. His life will shout it for a billion eternities. I got excited about this. That's what I want my life to shout. Not just today, but forever, right? Beloved, what you do for the name of Christ, it echoes in eternity forever. Forever. I sometimes, okay, this is just me. I sometimes envision the Lord and I sitting under a tree in the new heaven and new earth, and He's saying, I remember that time. Jim, I remember that time. I loved that time. I'll never forget that time. Gives me goosebumps. You need to be storing up these kinds of times that you and the Lord can sit under a tree in the new heaven and new earth and talk about the times you made much of Him when it was really hard. Right? So I'm going to close with um, a true story. Uh, I've only shared it with you a couple of times. Uh, some of you may remember it. Uh, Joseph, he was a Maasai warrior. And on a journey, he was radically converted. He was very excited to go back to his village. Um, he went in and began to testify to Jesus. He was held down by the men and whipped by the women with strands of barbed wire. He was drugged outside the village and left to die. He woke up uh, a day or so later, confused, thinking he must have obviously left something out or made some error in his witness. So he rehearsed his presentation and he went back in. Once again, he was beaten and dragged outside and left to die. Joseph survived the second beating by the providence of God. And after days of recuperation, he went back in the third time. This is a true story. This is documented. <laughs> he went back in the third time. Oh, guess what happened? They attacked him again. They attacked him again and they flogged him for the third and probably last time. But as he began to lose consciousness, he noticed that some of the women began to cry. And when he regained consciousness, they were tending to his wounds. 
They wanted to know more about this Jesus. I know that none of us probably can fathom ever doing anything like that. It makes me sad to think that I'm not sure if I could or I would. But that's the call. Whatever your circumstance is, you're not Joseph, you're not a Maasai warrior, you don't live in that village. But you live where you live and you work where you work. And you got to decide, right? Am I going to be the light in this place no matter what it costs? Am I going to follow Jesus no matter what it costs? So, undomesticated Christianity, biblical Christianity, it's not always easy, it's not always comfortable, it's not always manageable, it's not always secure, and it's not always safe. It's not supposed to be. Joel Osteen is a false teacher, and all like him. We will see the judgment fall on these false teachers. I wouldn't want to be one of them on the last day. So let's just end like this. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 16. I've already read it to you once, but it's so powerful. I'm going to read it to you again, and we're done. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Now, why does God test our faith? Does God need to know if it's real? Or does God already know if it's real or not? You need to know it's real. You need to know you can stand and take the heat. You need to know it. He already knows if your faith is real or not. It's for your testing, the Bible says. As though, you know, don't think some strange thing has happened to you. This is not strange. This happens to all Christians. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Beloved, this is huge. This is huge. This is the Word of God. Can you see why I only preach one verse? There's a lot of stuff there, man. A lot of stuff for you and a lot of stuff for me. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this message. I know I've been challenged by it. I know I've had to ask myself some questions. I know I've had to evaluate my commitment, my faith, my courage. Lord, it's okay for us to confess our weakness. But you have challenged us to be ready when the test comes. Not that you may learn something about us, but that we may learn something about us. And, oh Lord, I pray that our test would be, would be real, that it would be authentic, that we are your people, that we're not just playing a religious game like millions of professed Christians do. But it's really real with us. We get the Philippians 1.21, and we want to go down swinging. We understand that to live is all about you and to die is all about you. 
Everything else is second. So, Lord, thank you again for this message. We thank you for how you've loved us. We thank you for how you exhort us from your word. Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to be your people in the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand and I'll close with a benediction for us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Have a great week. Hey, invite somebody to come to church. We have plenty of space. Okay, have a good one. God bless. Hope to see you next time.